Welcome. Minus five, four, three, two, one, zero. Welcome. Well, I'm Tabitha Bartley. I was born and raised in Lafayette, Indiana, and I now live in Monticello, Indiana, which is about 45 minutes from there. Um, I joined the Marine Corps in 2010. Um, what was kind of unique to my story is I actually had a 21st century scholarship, so I could have gone to any public university in the state of Indiana for free, essentially, and instead I decided to join the Marine Corps. I never considered the military as an option in high school. I just don't remember ever start talking to a recruiter, but the Marine Corps called me one random afternoon and was like, you have time to talk? And I was like, well, caught me on a good day. I guess I'll come in and talk, but you know, there's no way I'm joining the Marine Corps. Lo and behold, uh, the recruiter and I instantly hit it off talking about the New York Yankees. I was a huge Yankees fan at that time. Bernie Williams was like my biggest hero. And we just talked about so much in the conversation. We had talked about one of the humanitarian missions we had gone on where multiple different branches had tried to get provisions into like a humanitarian relief effort and they weren't able to because every time they did shots were fired at them and it, they weren't trying to make it that type of a situation and so they called in his unit of marines and I'll preface this to say I don't know if this is a true story or not okay? <laughs> but he said uh, because of our uniforms we were able to get these provisions without any violence without any gunshots and he was like and it was the symbolism and what they knew are uniform to represent eagle globe and anchor and just all of that and i was just kind of hooked at that moment um, for a number of reasons but the biggest thing for the ring corps was the intangibles it wasn't you know the job most every branch service has the same jobs they have the same rank structure the same pay it, and so it wasn't all of that it was those intangibles that the marine corps offered to me but that said, I didn't talk to any other branch, so I don't know what the, their intangibles were. <laughs> but the recruiter, he, he just, he sold me on it. Um, and he sold me specifically on public affairs. And so I was unique also where I had to wait 11 months to even join or in the delayed entry program to ship off to boot camp because I wanted that specific job. And that was really important to me to have that job. It was kind of a dream job and I had no idea that the military did it. I wish I knew when I joined the military what I knew later on as a recruiter because I didn't have any family in the military. So I didn't have any of that, hey, here's some tips and tricks when you talk to a recruiter to pick a job. Um, but what was it about about public affairs that had your interest so much in, in doing that? It, I was blessed with an amazing recruiter. I mean, I will honestly say he was my first mentor in the Marine Corps. And I know that's not always the case when it comes to those who enlist in recruiter relationships. Um, but he, he was my first mentor and he he really listened to, to me and kind of like what I wanted to do in life and kind of the bigger picture. And it was the you know, photography, the journalism, the public speaking, the engaging with the community, the thought of not doing the exact same thing every single day was really appealing to me as well as here's a job that 
does deploy, that does do humanitarian missions, that that gets to go out and see the world. Um, and that was also a feeling. I, I kind of wanted to see the worst of humanity because in that I think you can also see the best of humanity. And the way that public affairs was presented to me was that you could be in these situations and you could be the worst situation imaginable football that you could be somebody who was doing the good or making an impact. And that just kind of spoke very well to my belief on life and my kind of what I feel my purpose is, which is just to do good, not great things, not amazing things, just to do good. And so that really appealed to me with that specific job, as well as transferable to whenever I did get out, I knew that there were just skills that I would take and could take into the civilian world. And, and so I just thought it was the, the perfect job for me. So with that, then, with, with, with your, it was eight years, correct? Mark? Yes. Okay. So with those, with those eight years, what are some of those um, best and worst of humanity that you saw that really sticks out? Yeah, I, I unfortunately didn't get to deploy. So my first duty station was at Marine Corps Base Quantico. Um, and then I worked at the Marine Corps Recruiting Station, Columbia, South Carolina, and I got to travel all over. So I didn't really see the worst in humanity and those type of things by, by any means because I didn't get the opportunity to deploy um, or to go to other countries. But I, I saw the struggles and a lot of it is that I saw was the, the perception of what it means to serve or the perception of what the Marine Corps is. And I pretty much spent my job being able to challenge those perceptions and build bridges with community and those type of people, which was really rewarding for me. Um, and I was able to just create so many bonds in the Marine Corps that I think that, that was a huge thing for me. I, I always refer to my, uh, that I have three families, my Quantico family, my, you know, my family I was born in, and then my recruiting station family. That, that's just how big of an impact they had on my life and that time had on my life. And so Luckily, I, I didn't really get to see the worst in that time. I kind of got the, the best of people and was constantly surrounded by amazing individuals. And then you met me, somebody in the <laughs> army. And man, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so, so with that, so, so you didn't get to see firsthand any of those, any of those deployments. Um, did you did you find yourself interviewing people who had deployed and, and maybe you know, experiencing some of that stuff secondhand? And if so, what 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 did that look like for you? Yeah, there you know it was it was interesting. There were some very feel good stories and some very hard stories. Um, one specifically that I remember was. Um, he was a member of the Marine Corps shooting team at Quantico, and he had developed cancer right before he was supposed to deploy. Luckily, he beat cancer and was still in the Marine Corps, and he was doing well now. But his struggle with cancer, it was just, it was so impactful that when he talked about his struggles, it wasn't even his struggles of fighting cancer or fighting for his life. It was the fact that his unit then, he found out about it right before he was supposed to deploy, and his unit deployed and he wasn't able to go and the impact that that had on him. Um, while I was there, I also, I got to run the volunteer program and one of the events that we did 
was we were guardians for the honor flights. And I had the, the privilege to actually surprise my grandfather and be his guardian. Um, and that was probably one of the most impactful days that I'll remember. Um, it was the first time I saw my grandfather cry. First time that he shared stories of his time in service. He served in the army um, in Korea. And there was a moment after looking at his memorial that we got back on the bus and we were sitting there and my grandfather had tears rolling down his eyes and he was just like, I don't know why I made it when they did it. And to see that, you know, generations later and the impact that that had and his generation didn't feel like they could talk about it or didn't talk about it or he didn't want to burden his family. I, I don't really know, but that was so impactful to finally share a moment with him where he felt like he could share some of that. Um, it, multiple of my peers had, had been deployed um, and the nerves of why they were deployed. Um, a few years ago, we lost a combat camera during a humanitarian mission, which was a, a huge impact on our community. So it, it was always around. Um, I, when, when I um, was stationed at Quantico, there was an active shooter there. When I was stationed at the recruiting station, that's when we had the active shooter in um, Baton Rouge area, which was my recruiting district. And then I had a Marine who died while uh, I was in the RS and that was extremely impactful to me and kind of my journey and ended up developing PTSD from this and anxiety and just a lot of that. So even though I didn't experience it and, and haven't had to live with it, I have from kind of that angle, as well as dual military, my husband deployed to Africa. And so I've also seen it kind of as a military spouse, although I was in the same time he was. And so you, you still see it and you still get that impact by no means as hard as going through it, but it still affects you and it's still there and a part of the daily structure. Yeah, sure. And, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize is that when it comes to even being a spouse uh, and having that, having that impact um, as a spouse, you know, it, experiencing even like experiencing PTSD secondhand as that, as that spouse, that's a real thing too. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize that. And that's why I, I'm having now more spouses come on to the podcast so they can share what life is like as the spouse of a service member. And, and, and it, because, and I also think that they, spouses play a big part in the military and veteran communities because when the, when the people in uniform come home, that, that spouse, well, you know, you know, that's just, yeah, that's just a whole nother a whole nother piece of, of the pie. And so for you, you got to you know, experience being the person in uniform and the person who was back home. Um, what are some of the some maybe similarities and distinctions that you noticed in those two distinctly different roles? Yeah, I, and our story is kind of unique. I think uh, my husband actually ended up uh, getting out of the Navy so that I could stay in the Marine Corps. Dual military and being Navy and Marine Corps, it was very hard on us. Um, and we, we had children and we just wanted to make sure that somebody would always be there for them. And I think in the back of our minds, that was kind of a fear with both of us being in service, both of us wanting to deploy and wanting that type of 
experience from our careers that he he made the hard decision and he said he he would get out so that I could stay in. Um, and I think at that time, I don't think I saw it as much as I do now where we're both out and we're kind of both dealing with our PTSD and kind of our transitions and how they were. I see it a lot more now where I, I almost wish as a, as a dependent that I had been there more for him on his transition, that I had done more. Um, but I was so focused on just my daily, like I was, you know, always at a hundred thousand percent go, go, go. Um, and that was how I thrived. And mentally that's kind of where I do my best. And I feel like I just didn't do enough for him uh, when he got out and that maybe I didn't acknowledge it enough because I didn't understand it. So it's really to be on the back end and both of us be out now, I see it's so eye-opening, the things that I didn't see or the things that I didn't catch. And, and again, I don't know if it's because I was still in that I was kind of oblivious to some things, but having now transitioned out and seen it from a few different angles, it's just like, wow, there's a lot we, we could have done as a family unit to make that better, to make that transition more successful. See, yeah, Trend, and I think transition... I, that's one of the biggest things that I've noticed for me and in, in, in my transition story, but even in other other veterans, that, that transition is a big deal. It's a, it's, a, it's a lot more difficult than people realize. I don't care if somebody was in for four years or, or 20 or 30 years, you spent that four years or for you that eight years, uh, eight years of your life was Uncle Sam telling you what to do, how to do it, what to wear how to wear it, when to wear it, um, and, and then to get out of the military and make those decisions on your own. Uh, yes, picking out your clothes. Yeah, and as a woman, I mean, our uniforms in the military, they're not like conducive to females, especially pregnant. Pregnant. Um, <laughs> and so I actually remember, I mean, funny you even mentioned that because I remember the first job fair I went to, and I'm, I, fashionable-ish person. I feel like I know how to dress. We did it a lot at the recruiting station where we wore civilian attire, but all of a sudden the pressure was on me in a different way. And I remember like almost breaking down in tears at my grandma's house. Like grandma, is this outfit enough? Like, is this good enough? Like, I don't like, what does this outfit say? Like, I don't know. Like <laughs> just having a moment. Um, The big one for me though was the makeup. I was like, how much makeup? How do I put makeup on? Like Although I wore makeup in the Marine Corps, it just wasn't, I don't know, with that transition, there was some like lack of knowledge or confidence in it where the Marine Corps was like, I knew exactly what I could and couldn't wear makeup wise and it made it easier. Yeah. <laughs> you know that you have a little bit of leniency, but then when you take those, those tight parameters away and anything is game, oh my gosh. I, yeah. <laughs> And then the support, like I was blessed with amazing commands my, my whole time in. So all of a sudden to not have this massive support system behind me, or I felt like I didn't, my transition was, it, it was traumatic. I don't know how else to say it. I, you know, I had my third child and six weeks was told I was good to go, did an eight mile hike, um, taking photos, carrying my camera back. And the next weekend I ended up in the emergency room because my uterus was falling out of my body. And then it was months of fighting to see what was even wrong with me because the ER doctor 
said that nothing was wrong with me and I Googled my symptoms. To finally getting, you know, you have to get referred to back to gyno because that's not offered in normal, like military, you can't just go see a gyno, you have to get a referral. And then waiting for a referral for another specialist where it was months of me fighting to find out what was even wrong with me. So then find out that it was going to require surgery. It was going to require a lot. And then the Marine Corps deciding that they were just going to, they were just going to get rid of me essentially. So three days before my end of service, I was told they were not medically holding me. And so I can't physically stand for more than 15 minutes without severe pain and literally organs starting to fall out of my body. That's causing all sorts of like hormonal issues, anxiety issues, like all of these other issues that I've never really dealt with before. So now I have to figure out how to move my entire family back home to Indiana because that's where my support system is from South Carolina. It was, I wouldn't wish my transition or what happened in on anybody. And the worst part is it, it's not as unique as it sounds. When I got out and started interacting with other, other veterans, I think that's what really started bothering me even more that it wasn't as unique as it sounds. Or the fact that once I got out, I still then had to fight to even get seen and get taken care of. And I, I just couldn't fathom somebody going through that the way I did and going through it alone. I had a great support system. Um, and there was one day specifically where I remember sitting on the phone with the VA, like fighting to be seen. And I remember saying, how is women's care, specialty care, if every woman needs it? Explain that to me. And they couldn't. And after getting off that phone call, I remember just like hysterically crying and I'm not much of a crier. And I, I just understood how a veteran in the transition process could get to the point of suicide. I don't like to say I was suicidal, but in that moment, like I really understood how this process could bring somebody to their knees and to that decision. And, and that was hard for me. And that kind of like drives me and like what I did next in my life and what I want to keep doing and making sure that no veteran goes through that as much as I can help it. And as much as I can do, uh, because we're not in it alone. And I think that luckily the last you know, two years have been out, I've found this community, I've found that, that there's an instant connection with other veterans, and that we're not in this alone, we just have to, we just have to connect and figure out how to connect. We'll be right back. <laughs> Subscribe now. I had to fight to get two hip surgeries, and I was a PFC at the time, and I fought, and I fought, and I got those surgeries, and the Marine Corps got, you know, more use out of me. And, you know, my big thing was you invested all this money into a person. It costs less for you to make sure that what you've already invested in me, like that I'm taking care of and that I'm able to keep functioning than to find a replacement for me because it does. And, and I'll purpose to say, I love the Marine Corps. And I think that the Marine Corps is a great option for females, for males, I do. And I think that there's a lot of misconceptions, but there's also things that have to be addressed and have to be fixed. And I think that I was one of those people that like my love for the Marine Corps constantly demanded more of the Marine Corps. And I was blessed to have leadership that agreed and were the same way. But medically, the Marine Corps doesn't have any power. And that, that is, you know, a pretty big flaw. They have no oversight. And the, the naval female doctor who saw me, what she, the exact quote she said to me was, 
yeah, yeah, you have these prolapse, but plenty of women get it and plenty of women live with it. So the VA can fix it. That was her deciding factor on why they weren't going to medically hold me. And the only action I could take at that time was a congressional inquiry. And so I reached out to my local officials in Indiana, multiple of them, um, trying to get help on this because I had three days to get it done. The inquiry had to be done before my EAS. And that was the only action that could be taken to get it changed or to have any sort of impact. And I was pushed to the side from my elected officials. It wasn't a priority. They didn't care. One even had the audacity to say that it wasn't his responsibility. And so that led me to run for office because again, my, the sad thing is my story is not unique. It's not. And, and so I'm grateful in regards to that, that at least it kind of spurred me to do more. And I realized I could do more, but it, it just sent me down this rabbit hole of there's so much that needs to be changed and that we need to do better. And I'm proud of the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps is taking steps to how do we address postpartum care more? How do we address females in the military more? And they are taking steps and they're, they're doing things that I'm extremely proud of. I, I just know that like we have to keep pushing on from every side and every angle to make change happen. Okay, one can of worms at a time. Hold on. <laughs> no, um, yeah. I don't even know what question to ask next because it's like where because there's so many different ways to go with this, you know? I mean, so before we get into running for office, um you're when you're told when you're told the VA will take care of you or you're told you you're told that's not my responsibility or that's not our responsibility the question that would come to my mind would be okay great so whose responsibility is it and don't say the VA because I don't belong to the VA yet I'm not there yet yep so how did you how did you like wrap your head around that I didn't. That's kind of the, the thing. It was more of a, I had to figure out how to survive. I had to figure out how to get a job and how to get back home and somewhere to live and a career that, okay, if the, if I can't get taken through care of through the VA, then I need a job that will offer some sort of care until I can get that figured out and a job that would be willing to let me travel over an hour for multiple VA appointments to first, you know, to get through the process to get VA care. And then again, I live in rural Indiana. The, the closest clinic to me is 45 minutes and it's a clinic. It's your basic clinic. And then the closest VA hospital to me is an hour and 20 minutes. And so honestly, it was do everything I can to survive. I mean, that's, that's where I was at. I, I ended up in the emergency room multiple times because of what was going on with me and what it was causing. I felt like I was failing as a mother and as a wife and, and all of these things. I honestly can't tell you mentally where I was because I was struggling so much. It was literally just about what can I do to survive this moment? And so, so feeling like a, like you failed as a mother and as a wife, what, what do you think it is that made you feel like that? Was it, do you feel like you were 
comparing yourself to what uh, an expectation that what a mother should be or what a wife should be. I mean, why did you feel like you were failing in those areas because you had these medical issues going on? I mean, that was, I mean, that was the fact. I mean, there'd be times that I couldn't play with my kids that I'd be stuck in the bed um, because of the pain that I couldn't take them even just to normal, like outdoor outings or outdoor events, because if I didn't know if I could sit, I knew that I was going to be in extreme pain and couldn't function. Um, it, it was that lack of being able to control my body, I think was what made me feel like the failure that I couldn't get my body to do things that I couldn't sit up and read a book to my son that I couldn't go play with him outside not being able to do those type of things and it impacting my children's life that's you know that's where I felt it and then my husband took the burden of everything my husband was the rock he was the one that held everything together emotionally that it didn't matter if I needed to lay down he would handle everything that had to be done in the house and so as a spouse, I mean, I just felt like I was failing him because he was, he was doing everything. And on top of that, taking care of me. And so that, that was hard. It was really hard for me. Um, especially we, we had a marriage and we have a marriage that I feel is, is pretty, is very teamwork. He, he's a stay at home dad, so he carries a lot more of the weight, but at the same time, you know, we do things as a team and it's, it's very much everything together. And at that time, I just who knew if I could give the kids a bath if they needed a bath type thing. I think that's great. Um, having that having that support system, I think, is 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 amazing. Um, and and it, it really is a, a powerful thing. I think that's you know why we, especially as we transition out the military and, and on the veteran side of the house that we need to make sure that we do have a support system, whether it's a spouse or another family member or somebody that you previously served with or a new person in your new community as you f figure out what this new role is, you know, that you're having to fill. Um, so now, and, and so it's been how long since you've been out now? I got out October of 2018. So, so it's been like almost three years. Yep. Not quite, but almost three years. So what, now that you're out, what have the past three years looked like for you as you go to the VA? And like you mentioned earlier, fighting the VA just to get the care that you need to take care of yourself. What has the past three years looked like? In regards to the VA, it's been really, really frustrating because individual interactions with people have been amazing. I have a phenomenal PCM and there's a phenomenal staff in the West Lafayette Clinic. But the overall system and having to go through Indy, the minute that anything has to go outside their parameters to get approved or go through any other channels or to be seen out in the civilian sector has been an a battle every single time something that I have to battle or fight for uh, and that's that's frustrating as well as um, I ended up going to counseling and getting diagnosed with PTSD and anxiety and this was after I did my claim so I redid my claim to, to claim that so that I could make sure to always get that mental health that I need now and the interviewer never talked about any of the PTSD scenarios instead talk about all these other things. Um, I even said something and she was like, oh, there's no way that that ever happened. 
uh, it just belittled me throughout the whole thing. And I ended up in tears and leaving and they, they, you know, they didn't say that it was, um, that I had PTSD. And so, or that I, the claim didn't go through, that's, that's what it is because I've already been diagnosed through the VA system that I have PTSD and went through cognitive therapy. And so that was like a big punch to every time that I felt like we're getting somewhere and I'm healing and holistically, like I'm getting in a better place. It was like the VA would do something to knock me back down. Something would happen to knock me back down. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, like through this, I didn't want any other veteran to go through what I went through. We didn't have a support system. So I started um, a chapter for women veterans and it is it, just meant to be like a social and to meet so that we could have that network and, and have that support from people who really understood it. And that's where even more I learned that my story wasn't unique to me. Even my injury was not unique. There was another post 9-11 female had the same injury and even a Vietnam female veteran who had the same injury. So that injury is not even, you know, unique. And they had to fight for kids. And just all of these things that it's like, we're in this very small community. There's like 25 of us now, the 25 of us three have this exact same issue that we've had to fight the exact same way. Why is this not being tracked in the system? Why, when I say that there's an issue and I point it out, why does it not go somewhere? And so I'm constantly fighting that, constantly like trying to figure that system out and fight for that. But in it, I mean, there are individuals who are amazing. Like I said, I mean, my PCM is, is a godsend, honestly. And I'm so thankful for her and the providers that I've got to see. Talk about that. Yeah, yeah. so I decided to run for state Senate. Not something that I ever envisioned myself doing. I am the least political person I know. I am frustrated by the whole system. And I know we've had a super long conversation about that. But uh, funny enough, you know, I was doing another podcast with a female veteran at the end of it. She was like, have you considered running? And I was like, oh, oh, no. They called me Blunt Bartley in the Marine Corps. I am... I am not who you want running for office. And then the more I thought about it, it was just like, well, why would this all happen around the same time? Why would I have these issues with my elected officials not doing anything for me and then getting this sign if maybe it wasn't something I was supposed to do or try to do. Um, and so I decided to run for office with my goal being to make change happen. My goal wasn't to win. That was my hope and I, I fought for it, but it was to make change happen. And, the process from how to run and what you're doing and just in general, because I think there's so much change that needs to happen. And it's not about what party you are. It's that Indiana specifically, we have a lot of issues that are, a lot of our elected officials use their parties to not actually accomplish any mission, to not actually address any of the issues. And so I, I felt like I loved my time in the Marine Corps and at the recruiting station. I don't know if they were, so I was in during the time um, when sexual assaults and sexual harassments were, were finally kind of getting more vocal and were getting able to address it a little more. I, I personally didn't experience that in my career. However, I was a uniformed sexual assault victim advocate at the recruiting station. It was like um, additional duty that I volunteered for and that I really wanted to do because I could see that there was an issue. Again, I was blessed with a great command around me. So it wasn't 
as if I was experiencing it or seeing it first firsthand. But the amount of females that I knew who had experienced it and had gone through things, I knew that this was something that we, again, had to be proactive about, had to talk about, and couldn't keep hush-hush or pretend it wasn't happening. Um, and there was, I, I don't know what, what drove it, but it was very much in the spotlight. And I worked a lot with the community and educators workshop and in the high schools. And I'm a very blunt and honest person. And so it was really important to me to address these issues and to talk about it and to talk about the difference it was serving as a female. I was blessed to actually have a female executive officer who is one of the best Marines, like female male, hands down, just one of the best Marines I've ever worked for. And we were very honest about how kind of our careers were a little different, how we almost had a, the honesty of what it means to serve as a female. So kind of feeling like you constantly have to be above your peers and do better than your peers to get kind of like the equal recognition, um, which again, isn't the, isn't the case for everybody, but that was one of those things that we did talk about that it, it felt like there was that dynamic sometimes. And again, I was blessed to have amazing leadership that I, that really did value me and showed me that they valued me. But as a female, there, there just were times that I felt like I had to act a certain way and I kind of refused to, if that made sense. I, again, I got the name Blunt Bartley. It's not because I talked any different than my male peers. It was because I talked the same way that they did. And so that, that was a conversation that I was willing to have. And again, I, the sexual assaults that were happening in the Marine Corps and nothing being done, it, it was just important to me that we didn't pretend like it wasn't happening um, and that we didn't pretend like there was that dynamic. And so sometimes uh, the recruiters I worked with who were way higher ranked didn't like my vocalism on it. Uh, there was one specific incident where I remember one of the recruiters coming into my office and trying to essentially like, oh, you, you need to respect me and that post wasn't respectful and blah, blah, blah. And, and I remember, and this was, this was probably a belligerent moment of mine, but I remember saying, oh, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's great, Gunny. Um, but you saw the CEO liked my post, right? And, and feel free to go talk to the XO because we've already talked about it as well. And, and, and the command doesn't have an issue with it. Uh, because I was just sick of it. You know, there was just some things that it's like, why do I have to have this conversation again? And, and again, I've, I'm extremely vocal that I think the Marine Corps is a great option. A great option. I think that the Marine Corps gave me so many skills and, and tangible and intangibles and experiences I just couldn't have had from the civilian sector. But that doesn't mean I'm going to ignore the things that could have been better or the things that people need to be aware of. Um, it's no different than if somebody's looking to join the military and they ask me what branch of service and I say research them all, I, I believe that there's kind of a branch that a branch or two that melds better personality wise with people, but also what do you want to do afterwards? Because you can only have at the longest, what, 20, 30 year career there. So you have to think about what you want to do after as well and, and pick a career in the military that would help you transition that way. And so I just felt like those type of conversations were no different than talking about the sexual assault issues, sexual harassment. Um, for me, I actually had more harassment on the VA side of the house and more experiences where my gender mattered. When I was in the room for my gender didn't matter as much as 
every VA appointment I went to, the provider or whoever was checking me in would always say, oh, I'm not used to dealing with a female or I don't know what to do with a female. Um, forgetting that like before my colonoscopy that I needed to take a pregnancy test. It, there's just all these things that it's like, this isn't like, have you never dealt with a female patient before? Have you never dealt with a female veteran? Like, I just don't, I don't see that being possible. Um, so, so that was just a big topic. And I'm, I'm, I think I'm more vocal about it now because my gender seems to matter a lot more now than it did in as where when I was in, it was more so that we were fighting and I was constantly bringing up how if you're recruiting for females, don't make a brochure targeting females, just include female photos of female Marines in what you're already doing. It's as simple as that, not create a separate entity. And so that, that was just kind of the, the, the struggles, I guess, that I had while there, nothing, nothing crazy though. And again, I absolutely loved my time and loved my job and what I did. I was blessed in regards to that. So, so here's, 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 here's the big question or two um, for you, for you personally and for you just, okay, here's two questions and answer, answer them in whichever order you feel better, uh, feel best or want to. You were in PAO, so you know these questions. At the end of any kind of interview that you would ever do with somebody, it's like, okay, for you personally, what is it for the people who listen to this episode? What is something about you that you would want the people who are listening to know about? And then the second question would be, if uh, along the similar lines, what would be the big takeaway that you would want listeners to um, remember when they, at, when they have finished listening to this episode? So whichever one you want to answer first, you know, about you personally or, or any kind of call to action that you would give people who are listening, what would that be? I think the first thing is, and I, I, you know, my husband and I were talking about this and I kind of feel like this is my life goal or my life purpose and something that I'm constantly having to do myself as well. And I think we all need to do more of is challenge our preconceived notions and our perceptions, challenge them constantly in everything, even things you think you know, or you fully know, we need to do better about challenging what our perceptions are. Uh, how many times in the military, you know, have you heard perception is reality? And I think that that is important and that has a token to it. But the backside of that is that we need to challenge those perceptions. We personally have to take the actions to do that. And, and so that's kind of my life goal. But the thing that I want to do is challenge perceptions constantly and help people to to challenge what their preconceived notions are and see things from a, a, a different light. Um, and I think that if at the end of this, what I want people to take away in regards to me is I am a veteran, yes, but my story is unique to me. It is my story, it is my experience. And just because you have met one veteran or listened to 20 veteran stories, that doesn't mean that you know what another veteran went through or another person went through. Again, it is unique to them. Are the challenges we face together? Yes. But I think we have to take a step back and start realizing a little more that every veteran story is not the same and that it's not the same experience. We do have a bond and there are things that I, 
I just can't compare to, you know, civilian relationships. It's just an instant bond. And I can't say that I've felt that in the civilian world as much. Um, but our stories are unique to us. So ask veterans their stories. Ask them to share what they're comfortable sharing. And I, I think that alone will start helping change some of those perceptions of preconceived notions. You know, I think it's awesome that you said that because I remember um, a while back recording an episode with, uh, he was the, he was retired. He was the former um, chief of chaplains for the Air Force. And he said with that, you know, because he was a flag, a flag officer, he said that he would get, you know, invited to go do, uh, go to a lot, attend and be part of a lot of events. And um, he, one of the things that he said when it came to Veterans Day was a lot of times he'd be um, asked to be the person to do the invocation or the prayer at a particular event. And he said he always loved doing the veteran events because without fail, he said it wasn't because, oh, well, I'm a one-star general and I was part of the event, but he, he said he loved doing those events and was willing to drive that 45 minutes one way to go to it because he got to hear those veteran stories. He said that it didn't matter, you know, just like what you were saying, it didn't, it didn't matter what branch the person was in. It didn't matter what era the person served in. Um, veteran stories are veteran stories. And there, there is that common thread. Um, there are some common themes amongst stories and there are some uh, similarities, but just like every person is unique and every person is different, so are those stories that go with it. And so I, I, love, I love hearing people's stories of what life was like um, in, in whatever branch they served in and whatever component of that branch, however long they were in, I don't care. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've spoken with, like, like I said, that chief of chaplains, I've, I've spoken with people who have been in, in military service for three decades and, and a little more. So, you know, and then I've also spoken with people who have been in for three years. Um, and I love every story all the same, um, whether it's a three-year person, a three-year veteran or a 30-year veteran. Um, the, and, and I think, you know, the, people who know me joke around with me uh, or, or mess with me when um, I, in a conversation, um, somebody said, oh, I was only in for two years, four years, whatever. And, and someone would say, uh-oh, here goes Tiffany. Because I'd be like, you, you what now? Say that again? And they would say, well, I was only, I was only in for like, you know, for, for four years. I said, oh, you mean you were in for four years? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, so you meant to say you were in for four years, not only four years, right? I mean, that's what you meant, right? And they're like, well, yeah, but I, you know, I wasn't in for like as long as you were. I'm like, but that, I didn't ask you to compare your time to me. You were in for four years. Yeah, and, and that's when you go back to that percentage of like, what one we say one percent of the American population actually put on a uniform. So you 
did something that 99% of Americans don't do, whether it's because of choice or lacking in qualifications or whatever the case may be. So you didn't only serve four years, you did serve four years. Yeah, or when somebody says, I was just a cook. So it's that word only and just, I was just a cook. Yeah, well, you may have been a cook, but guess what? If you weren't cooking those meals, those people that were firing those weapons would not have had a meal to eat while they were firing those weapons. So, and, and um, I had a similar conversation to with a Vietnam veteran, you know, when they came back and they didn't feel welcome and just that experience. And I, I was like, you know, we, we have to get to the point and we have to train the people around us, the civilians that like, we all swore an oath and we were willing to give our lives. That's what it means to serve in the most simplistic way that's what it means to serve is not whether or not you did. It was that you were willing to give your life. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's the, and, and the same thing even goes um, even further to the whether a person deployed or did not deploy It's the same type thing. Um, just because you didn't deploy does not mean that you did not fulfill your obligation to serve in you know army air force navy marine coast guard you know you you did like you said you did raise your your right hand and say hey um, you know this is the tmv tiffany marching version you raised your <laughs> you raised your right hand saying uncle sam you can use me however you want to and i'm okay with that for the next four years and so, because essentially, like I said, that's just my, my verbiage of when you take that oath of enlistment that you're saying, Uncle Sam, I'm all yours. And um, if you, I mean, whether, whether people really realize what they were saying or not when they did that, I don't know. But that's really what you were doing. Now, what Uncle Sam did with you during those four years that that's a different story but and, and yeah sure you you know every branch has a couple of bad apples who may may attempt to do everything within their power to say yeah i want to i want to serve but i want to serve over here in the united states i don't want to go over on the other side of the world so sure you, you know each branch has their own you know couple bad apples but you know for the you know the generally for the most part the bulk of the people when they, when they join the military, they genuinely do want to protect and defend, you know, the constitution. So, but what do I know? That's my soapbox. <laughs> Since you had so many cans of worms you wanted to open, I thought I would jump on a soapbox. <laughs> but you started it. It's your fault. I know I did. I know. So you open that can of worms and I just went with that one. It's, it's a never ending <laughs> can of worms here. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So now I don't know if I, if, if I mentioned this to you, I think I may have when we had talked before, there is a veteran um, who is, a, he's a Marine Corps veteran. I think he was in for four or six years um, and, and he he said he got tired of hearing that joke of marines eating crayons um and for the people who are listening who don't know you know yes all the branches banter back and forth with each other just like like having siblings um you you 
kind of pick on each other as siblings, but then the moment somebody else tries to pick on your sibling, you're like, uh uh-uh, back up. Only I can say that the Marine Corps eats crayons or or whatever the case may be, but but Marines eating crayons is one of those things that uh, one of those things that you know people you know will throw out there. Just like the Air Force will say, oh, it's the chair force, not the Air Force. Because all you do is sit in the chair, or, you know, whatever. <coughs> but what what he ended up doing was, he said, "Okay, you know, you the rest of you branches are not going to let that go, saying that Marines eat crayons. So I'm going to make it happen, and it's it's been approved by the FDA now. I think, and uh, I think now he's at a place where it's a matter of getting them out. But taking the MREs, the meals ready to eat." He, he has, he calls them CREs, crayons ready to eat. <laughs> and he said, and, and so they are crayons, they are edible crayons that you can color with, but you can also eat them as well. And so, and, and I don't remember the names of them, but he named like each, each color after the different branches. Like there's a, there's, you know, there's an Air Force blue, there's a, a red for the Marine Corps, you know, what, but I don't, but he named them and the names are funny too for each branch. And I don't really remember what those names are at the, at the moment, but yeah, he's like, so I, he said, so I'm going to go ahead and take that, take that um, y- y'all's, y'all's put down and turn it into a business. And so he started it. And yeah. I love it. I, I, I wish it's been a minute since I've talked to him. So I don't remember um, when it's officially going to be out there, but he did do, he did do a, a fundraiser to start getting that mass production out there. And I think when he was doing that, they did do some, um, have some samples and they taste like chocolate and you can color with them. And yeah, I don't know. Crazy. I know, I know, it is what it is, but yeah, fun times. Uh, so who knows? Next, next thing you know, after after that's up and running, he's gonna then have um, say, okay, we're gonna expand our product line, and we're gonna have these jars in the shape of a head or a head in the shape of a jar, and at the bottom of it is gonna have a little uh, strip of leather at the bottom of it to be like a leather neck or you know who knows who knows that is awesome yeah good times fun times um yeah well i really enjoyed talking to you again me I'm too just looking back at it and seeing i'm only you know i know the, the audience can't you know people who are listening can't see this but i'm like i just realized you can only see like from my nose up because <laughs> uh wonderful technological difficulties and stuff but it is what it is it is yeah, so we're going to have to do this again. And maybe when we do it again, we'll be able to eat some crowns and color with them. As oh, that'd be so great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get his uh, website. I do, I'm, I'm pretty sure his website is, is up and running now. So if you. I'll, I'll look it up and see. Yeah. So I think you can Google um, crayons ready to eat. Okay. And. Um, yeah, they'll come up with. Who would have thought? I mean, that's so epic. <laughs> I know it is. It really is. It's fun. Um, as a matter of fact, oh well, yeah. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, it's fun. It is good times. Well, um, so what I'm going to do, wait, let me go stop recording. Let me see. I probably should have done that before I started talking about those crayons ready to eat. Thank you and have a nice day.